0: The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Grace, You can be seated as we were singing those initial worship songs this morning, and we were talking about the blood of Jesus and His great saving grace in our life. I could not help but think back to the time, to the day, uh, the time period when I know that I knew that I knew that Jesus saved me. I'd cut my teeth in a little Southern Baptist nursery, right? Every time they sang Kumbaya in a youth group, I'd come forward and cry like a baby. But there was that time that I know that Jesus saved me. And I've thought about that a lot this last week. This next Saturday, Sandy and I will celebrate our 38th wedding anniversary. But here's what I think about in that. Had He not saved me and Sandy... Because I was a little sinner. Sandy was a huge sinner. (laughs) Had he not saved us, we would not be celebrating that next Saturday as Kate and Charles join in matrimony next Saturday. So we're excited for Charles and Kate. Now it's announced, and you can't get out of it, Charles, okay? Jesus saved us. You didn't find Him. He called you. Not that there was anything in you that He needed for Himself, but by His grace, His mercy, His love, His faithfulness, His greatness, He saved you when you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? Take your Bibles and turn. That's not the message, but I was just moved to that this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 17 as we're going to continue to walk through. Last week we had ended uh, Genesis chapter 16, and in that last verse, Moses makes a specific point to tell us that at that time, in verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. We saw last week how. Abram figured he would fulfill God's promise to him instigated by Sarai that, that he would sleep with Hagar, their maidservant, and, and maybe by that way they would fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham to make him a father of great nations. We found that that was not God's plan, right? And after that had taken place, Sarah was a little irritated at Abraham and blamed him for her idea, right? Right? And we saw, bottom line, that there's no way that you and I can fulfill the promises of God through any of our fleshly means. What do I mean by fleshly means? Fleshly means saying, I can do it myself, I can do it my way. God had a way, and it was God's way, and it's the only way that God plans to fulfill His will and His purposes. We can't manipulate that. We can't control that. And then he begins verse 1 in chapter in chapter 17 after he said that Abraham was 86 years old when Abraham was 99 years old, 13 years after this incident. 13 years after Abraham had tried to fulfill God's plan through Hagar, now all of a sudden God begins to speak to Abraham again. He meets Abraham again. And let me read these first Uh, first eight verses, and follow along with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and He said to him, "'I am God Almighty. Walk with Me and be blameless, that I may make My covenant between Me and you, and may multiply you greatly.' Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, "'Behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations.'" to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the the land that you sojourn in, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Father, we pray that God, as we see the truths here in Genesis chapter 17, God, that there would be Uh, the understanding and the knowing of Your greatness and Your goodness, and that, God, Your yeses are yes, and Your amen are amen, and Your noes are noes. God, that You are sovereign ruler of all of the universe and an application, God, of our lives as well. Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our eyes to hear Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It had been 23 years since Genesis chapter 12 when God had first called Abram out of Ur and had promised him a land and had promised him that he would be a father of many nations. 23 years. Can you imagine that? And here, after Abraham messes it up, and he tries to bring it about through his, uh, through Sarah's maid servant Hagar, another thirteen. Those thirteen years had passed, and sometimes we wonder in the promises of God, God, why is it taking you so long? But God is always on. God's always on time. He's never too late. He's never too early, and what we find him doing in Abram's life during that time is growing Abram in his faith of who He was, who God was, and God's promises in Him. And sometimes in your life and in my life, when it seems as though God is not acting soon enough, and we like to take matters into our own hands and try to fulfill the will or the promises of God, what God is doing is God is trying to grow our faith. But we want it now, right? As a church, we want certain things now, but we fail to realize that it's in that time that passes that one of the greatest things that God is doing in our lives is God is growing us in our faith in Him, not our faith in our faith, right? That's flesh, but God is growing our faith in Him because at the end of the day, because we are by by nature children of wrath and we have that sin nature, we always have the pride and think that we can do it ourselves. And God's wanting to say, no, you can't. You got to wait on me. And I'm the only one that can do it as I have planned to do it. And then I love the way Moses records how God comes to Abram. He says this. He says, again, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and He said to him, I am God Almighty. Every year we have a joint session in Congress where the President of the United States makes his State of the Union address. And sidebar, it's, it's more of a show than anything else. Amen. Regardless of what side of the aisle it is, it's typically a show. But as the president comes in, the speaker announces the president of the United States of America. And in our country, that is the highest title that one can have. But here God announces himself to Abraham, El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty. He says, I am God Almighty. Almighty.
1: El Sadi, El Sadi, El Eon, no I deny, age to age are still the same by the power of your name El Shaddai El Shaddai El come Kon Adonai We will praise him if you high El Shaddai Through your love and through your realm you save the son of Abraham through the power Turn the sea into jail to the outcast oh.
0: First time that that word would ever be used in Scripture as a name for God. El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. He used that name specifically to remind Abraham, Abraham, what you tried to accomplish in your own flesh, in your own means, you couldn't do it. The situation was beyond your control. You're an old man. You're 99. And Sarah is 89. Her womb has been closed. There's no way that I can fulfill this promise except that I am God Almighty. This name would be used throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis. When Moses is writing in Exodus, God says to Moses, he says, I appeared to Abraham Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Thirty-one times in that book that we like to say we are living in the life of Job, and by the way, none of us have ever lived in the life of Job. But 31 times, if you're familiar with Job's story, catastrophic events happen in Job's life, and 31 times God reminds Job, I am God Almighty. The situation is gloom. The situation is unbearable. Remember that I am God Almighty. The last occurrence in the book of Genesis says Jacob is praying a blessing over his sons there before he passes. The last time that this name would be used in Genesis in verse 25 of chapter uh, 49 Moses says, or Jacob says this, the Almighty who will bless you with blessing of the breast and of the womb. In other words, it is God Almighty who will bless you, and it is God Almighty who will fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham. And what God is saying to Abraham here in this opening verse of chapter 17, God is saying, Abraham... It's out of your ability to bring about my will and my promises and my purposes, but I am able. You see, Abraham, it doesn't matter how old you are. You're looking at matters in the natural, but I am a God of the supernatural. God Abraham, I am able Abraham, you don't have to succumb to some passive disposition where where maybe I can I can make my, my servant my my heir and God says no, well maybe I can fulfill it through Ishmael and God would you please make him the son of promise And God says no, there's no need for me, God Almighty, who is able to scale down the promise to match your puny thoughts. You see, Abraham, you think that you can fulfill my will and my promise through your methods, but I'm telling you what, your idea of how you're going to bring it to pass is just a little puny thought in relation to God Almighty. He's saying, Abraham, there's, there's no need for you to resort to other fleshly means to try to fulfill my will. There's no need for you to try to fulfill the promise that's been made to you in a second-rate way. I have a better way, and it's my way, and it's not your ways. And everything, Abraham, all of your life, all of your future lies in this one thing that I am God Almighty. And can I say something to the church this morning? That your future Everything in your life to come rests in one thing, and that is that God is God Almighty. The future of this church rests in one thing, and that He is God Almighty. We cannot accomplish the promises that God has given. We can't accomplish all the great things that that we anticipate and by faith believe that God is going to do through our own means of fleshly programs and, and fleshly matters and doing it the same way. God is God Almighty. Can you say amen to that? You see, what we believe about God is the most important thing in our life. Those of you that we celebrated your graduation just a couple of weeks ago, and, and you're going on to college or in the military or wherever you're going, your future and how you react and respond to the future rest on that one thing, and that is who do you believe that God is? Is He God Almighty? And we carry it all the way through our lives to, to those who are in X, Y, Z. Don't get offended this last Friday when you know that you're at the tail end of life. Everything in your future rests on the fact that God is God Almighty. And until you take your very last breath, He is God Almighty and He is able to do far and exceedingly abundantly more than ever we could ever think or imagine. He is God Almighty. Verse 5, Moses tells us that God had said to Abraham, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Names in the Hebrew culture had great significance and meaning. We didn't pick a name by going on the Internet back then. Al Gore hadn't invented the Internet back then. Just, that's a joke. But we didn't search books looking for a name that said, Oh, that's a good name. But the names in the Hebrew culture that were given had significant meaning to what their name was, and oftentimes those names were given by God in a prophetic sense of who that person might be. And so God had changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, Abram meaning exalted father referring to God, but now God would change his name to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. So that every time Abraham's name was mentioned, he was reminded that he was going to be a father of multitude. Can you imagine? Abraham, dinner's ready. Father of multitude, dinner is ready. Abraham, did you use the wrong dish towel to wipe your hands with? Father of multitude, did you use the wrong dish towel? It would not only be a promise made to Abraham, because Abraham would never see in the natural the fulfillment of God's promise, but it would be a promise not only to Abraham, but to Sarah as well, and it would be a promise to all of those descendants of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. He also tells Abraham in this chapter in verse 6, the latter part of it, and, and kings shall come from you. That seems like an odd thing. Now, Abraham is going to be a father of many nations, and, and from that would, become, would come kings. But the primary king that he was talking about was the ultimate king that Jesus was to come because a thousand years from that time when he told Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be a father of kings. From you are going to come kings. God fulfilled that when he anointed David as king over Israel. For it was through David's line that some 1,000 years later, when we see the introduction in the, in the book of Matthew where Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, that Jesus came declaring that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the continuation of the promise made to Abraham, that Abraham, from you will come many kings. Let's look at the sign of the covenant beginning in verse 9. First we saw the promise restated of the covenant. Now, the sign of the covenant, beginning in verse 9, he says this, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout all generations, all of their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Circle that word sign. He who is eight days or older, you shall be of you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised, and so shall my covenant be with your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." this sign of circumcision would be a sign that would be carried out for generations to come in the nation of Israel. It was restated, though, in Deuteronomy that that this sign of circumcision wasn't just for a sign of the circumcision in the natural way that we think about it. For in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, the Lord says this through Moses, he says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And in Jeremiah, the prophet prophesies this in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And while the sign was given to Abraham of the covenant of a fleshly circumcision, it was a foreshadowing, if you will, that God didn't just desire the circumcision of the flesh, that it wasn't by some outward means that they would find salvation. But God's intent was to show that there was another area that needed to be circumcised, and it was our hearts. See, Jesus says that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. And the Jews carried this sign on, and they held dear the sign of circumcision as God had commanded it. And it had turned into a thing that their rightness with God, their relationship to God, was through outer means of circumcision. And God is saying through the prophets, no, that's not what I mean. There's no way that you can ever be in right relationship with me through fleshly works, through works done in the flesh but there is a circumcision of the heart that only I can bring by the work of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, this circumcision, this fleshly circumcision that, that Abraham received and all of his household was, was really just a, a, an outward symbol. It's kind of like we use a symbol as a wedding ring to indicate that, that we're in covenant relationship with the spouse. The only difference in that symbol of a wedding ring and the symbol of circumcision that Abraham and his household would go through is that circumcision that Abraham endured was a permanent one. It can never be undone. Can I promise you, according to God's Word, that God's covenants made to us, and especially to us, the new covenant through Christ Jesus, are covenants that are depending on God and not us. And once God has entered into that covenant relationship with us, particularly through His Son, Jesus, that it is an everlasting covenant, give God thanks for that today. Some of you feel like you, and some of you did mess up this week. Can I see a show of hands of anybody that messed up in the last week? Oh, good. Let me see a show of hands of somebody that really messed up. No, don't do that. (laughs) Thank God that His covenant where he has circumcised our hearts when we were born again by the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ is an everlasting covenant. And there's nothing that you or I can ever do to undo that. It is a done thing. Take it to the bank. You can go on that. Amen see, it was a sign to Abraham that that would always remind Abraham of God's promises, and His promises are never fulfilled through the flesh, but His promises are fulfilled through God Almighty. It would also remind Abraham that... That any covenant relationship that's made with God, anytime there is a covenant relationship that's made, it is always, always, always ratified and solemnized through the shedding of blood. And the covenant that we have with God in that circumcision of the heart has been sealed by the precious blood of Jesus for all of eternity see, verse 14, when we look there, it says, "...any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." What God is saying there in that verse is that there's only one way, and it's God's way, not our way. You see, some of us in this room maybe have lived for years thinking that that there is a way to be in covenant, to be in right standing with God, and it depends on what I do. It depends on me living a moral life. It depends on me going to church every Sunday and and dropping an offering in the plate. That keeps me right with God. But can I tell you there's only one way, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In our culture today, particularly in our church culture, this thing that we call progressive Christianity, we used to call it liberalism back in the day. Same pig, just different lipstick. And it's what Paul refers to in Galatians as another gospel. And if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, Paul says, even if I come to you preaching another gospel, let them be accursed. Now, if I said that today about somebody preaching another gospel, I would get a lot of criticism on the Internet. But Paul puts it out there. There is no other way. God has made one way and its only way, and that is through the blood of Jesus, appropriated in our lives when we trust what He has done for us, not what we think we can accomplish in our own way. There's another name change that that God brings about in this passage, and that's the name change of Sarah. You see, He changes her name from Sarah to Sarah. It's interesting. Both words mean prince, sis, princess. So that's a question. Why change your name if the name means the same? It was significant because God wanted her to know, listen, I'm changing your name, that once you had this this ungodly, pagan name, that meant princess, but now I'm changing your name to a God-spirit-wrought name that means princess because every king needs a princess, right? So He changes Sarah's name. Let's look at the specifics of this covenant, beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sidebar our firstborn, Sarah, we named Sarah specifically because God had opened Sandy's womb. We were told we couldn't have children. Why God did it, I have no idea. Was it because we were living the right kind of life and praying the right kind of way? No. No. God is sovereign, and God chooses to do what He does. But the name we chose for her was Sarah because we were praying in this story that she would always be a princess. And she reminds me every day, Daddy, I'm your princess. You see, God names have meaning to God. So, God changes her name, and it would always be a constant reminder. Pick it up in verse 16. I will bless her, that is Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And I don't think the laugh here was in that sense of, God, it's impossible. I just think Abraham got a big chuckle out of that. I can't imagine at 60 a child coming from this old body, right? 99, that's crazy, God. But only God, right? Abraham said to God, Abraham blows me away. I I, I see so much of me in, in this statement. He says, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's trying again as if, yeah, God, I know you can bring about great nations from me, but the way that you're planning to do it, God, I'm not sure if that'll work. Do you understand the biological clock, God? So let it be through Ishmael. No, God said, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after me. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And God has indeed fulfilled that blessing and that promise. Somewhere along the way, the descendants of Ishmael broke that covenant with God. But we see that he's still a son of Abraham. I don't fully understand this, but God had made a promise to bless Ishmael and and the nations that would come from him. God's got to sort all that out. Verse 21, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. You know what Isaac's name means? Laughter. God has a sense of humor, doesn't He? Every time they'd call Isaac, It would remind them that that they laughed after God had fulfilled the impossible, that God is able to do what God determines to do. We see in the latter part of the chapter, verses 22 to 27, where they accept the covenant, and Abraham brings all of his his immediate family, Ishmael at 13 himself, and, and all of his household, those who were part of the family, and also those who were foreigners had been purchased in the other lands and, and brought along with Abraham. He takes all of them, and He circumcises everyone. I'm not going to go into that, but I'm sure it was not a pleasant setting And that mark of circumcision throughout every single day of every one of those males' lives would be reminded to them a multitude of times every day. They couldn't get away from the promise that God had made and what He was going to fulfill. That circumcision, though, that was being looked to in the future that circumcision of the heart that God only symbolized through the circumcision of the flesh would be fulfilled in the only way that it could be fulfilled, and that was through God's Son, Jesus Christ. You see, kings did come out of Abraham and Sarah. We've already referred to David and Second Samuel chapter 16, God made a promise to David, "'David, your throne shall be established forever.'" If you're familiar with the line of succession of kings in Israel, it doesn't seem like any of them after David would have met those requirements of, of God's kingdom, his, his kingship. David's kingship, be, it would be a forever kingdom. And so the Jews began to look now for that messianic king, if you will, that would be through the line of David. 400 years later, Ezekiel had prophesied to the nation in his prophecy that there was this king that was going to come, and there was one that was going to fulfill that that commitment that God had made. In verse 22 of chapter 34 and 23, he says, "'And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David.'" Now, this is 400 years after David, So he's not speaking of David, but he's speaking of one like David. God's prophesying through Ezekiel, and he's saying, I'll set up one that there be one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I and the Lord and I have spoken later the prophet of Jeremiah would prophesy this when he would make this declaration Jeremiah excuse me Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 where Isaiah would say this For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a king that's to come. And they're looking for this king, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the last prophecy about it. God says this through Zechariah, "Uh, where am I? In verse 8. Chapter 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation. He is humble, and he's mounted on a donkey and on a colt, a fowl of a donkey. And then we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday week. Chapter 9, verse 21 of Matthew And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, "'Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!' And we see God fulfilling this promise to Abraham, not only that he would be a father of many nations but that also kings would come from Him, through Him and Sarah, through the Davidic kingdom, and now through the Messiah, through Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, that week in Jesus' life culminated the absolute perfect life of faith and witness. Jesus has said this in John chapter 8, verse 28. When you have lifted me up as the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. You see, there was this circumcision of the heart that had to take place. The outward sign was given to Abraham, but God throughout all of history in the Old Testament and now fulfilled in Christ would point and show that the circumcision that needed to take place was a circumcision of the of man's heart. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, if you'll turn there with me, Paul writes this, and I'm going to conclude here. Some of you with a smartphone got there faster than I did. He says this in Christ, verse 11, chapter 2, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful work of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Summing up what Paul's saying here, guys, you're still wanting to have rightness with God through works of the flesh. And that sign being circumcision. But I'm telling you that it's to no avail. That the circumcision that has to take place is a circumcision of the heart, where there's a piercing of the heart, where there is a change of that heart that's wicked and deceitful, and a new heart is placed in you by the Spirit of God. And what you're trying to accomplish through outward means, you're you're wasting your time. It's effortless. And as a matter of fact, it's really an affront to God. But what you couldn't do in the natural God did for you in that Christ went to the cross, and when He went to the cross, He has canceled the debt that was written against every one of us. And that debt is a list of every sin that we've ever committed. We don't even know the number. But when Jesus went to the cross, Paul's saying, he nailed it to the cross, canceling the debt. And you know what it means in the Greek there? That he didn't just whitewash the debt that was there. But any evidence that stood against us in the courtroom of God, evidence that we had committed those sins, that God erased all of the evidence that would have even been there that the prosecutor could have used against us, and it's all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, how great a salvation. It never gets old, amen? and it doesn't cause us to want to take advantage of God's grace. It causes us to want to worship God and say, God, thank You so much for this great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Final verse in closing, He says this, but far be it for me, Colossians 6 verse 14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and to I, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. The only thing that counts is a new creation. The question Have you had the new creation? Have you been born again? Have you placed your trust in what Christ has done for you by nailing your sins to the cross and paying the penalty that stood against us that He received the wrath of God on our behalf? Have you trusted in what Christ has done? That's the only thing that matters. No work matters. Let me qualify that. I'll get a nasty gram about it. You see, those works that we do are foreordained, God says, according to Ephesians, for us to walk in them. Paul says that we're to work out our faith with fear and trembling. There, there's that change that takes place. James says, faith without works is dead, meaning that when there's that transformed life, there are works that are going to come, so, so they're good. But trying to obtain salvation or favor with God through works amounts to zero, not a nothing. It's only the blood of Jesus. In closing, let me just ask two questions. If you've not been born again, and you know today that you're a sinner, that God is holy, and you know there's no other way to get to Him through your own efforts, and you're ready to trust Christ, myself and a couple of the other pastors will be here at the end. I'd love for you to come and talk to us. If you're watching online, you can fill that out online or you can make a comment. We'll get in touch with you. The second class of people that may be listening today are those who, that you know you've been born again. but Sometime through the years, over the years, there has been a callousing of the heart. But that circumcision had been made, maybe you're truly born again. But there's been a callousing over of the heart. God wants to revive you. Revival takes repentance. God, I acknowledge. I've just become church incorporated class. There's no life of the Spirit here. There's there's no yielding of the Spirit. There's, there's, There's no desiring your will. There's no desiring your promises. God can change the heart, and only God can change the heart. You and I can't will it changed, but God the Holy Spirit can. Amen. Father. We- Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.